You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Hi, Oliver. Hi, Bob. How are you doing? I'm very well. How are you? I'm doing okay. Uh, let me introduce this. I'm Robert Wright. This is the Wright Show, available on both streaming video and via audio podcast. You're Oliver Bergman, well-known journalist. Uh, you've written a lot for The Guardian, but you write for other places, too. Um, you have written books, including, uh, in the past, one called The Antidote, Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking. Uh, and you've actually pretty recently recorded a conversation with me about free will, something I think we will agree we got to the bottom of. Totally, um, totally solved. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's done. Wait, wait till the professional philosophers hear us. <laughs> the reason I haven't posted it, honestly, is because I don't want to put those people out of work. You know, I mean, some of them have tenure, some of them don't. And, and, uh, anyway, I'm honestly not sure if that conversation is going to run before or after this, possibly after. Um, in any event, this conversation is about your new book, 4,000 Weeks. I'm holding it up to the screen. Time Management for Mortals by Oliver Bergman. I've got um, a finished copy here. Yeah. yeah. Oh, so yours looks better. This is actually Galley's. Yeah. You. You. Yeah. Yeah. That I'm holding. Um. So listen. Tell me if if I say anything you think is going to hurt book sales. Okay. Just stop me in mid sentence. But seems to me that a key takeaway here is the situation is hopeless, and the sooner you give up, the better. On, on the time management front. Uh, I would object violently to that. Uh, <laughs> okay, then maybe account. we should back up. Okay. Actually, well, you know what? I might not object to the first part. The situation is hopeless, but I think that's a cause for... Um, no, you shouldn't give up. No, you should Relief I, and getting cool things done and feeling energized and inspired. Yeah, that's, I, my, I, that's my challenge. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I threw that last part in just to annoy you. I, I knew it wasn't really part of the message. Um, but this is different from... Other time management books, clearly, from the get-go, right? I hope so. How would you uh, characterize the difference without repeating what I just said? Well, I mean, partly it comes from how it sort of has come out of my own kind of history as a so-called productivity geek, you know, obsessing about these different ways of organizing time and finding time for the important stuff and can talk about that a bit if you want. But I think in terms of the message, I'm trying to show that so many of the ways that we think about using time, especially what comes in books of productivity advice and time management advice, um, it just totally fails to engage with the fact that like the ultimate time management problem is that our lives are finite, not even very long. Um, that we have incredibly limited control over the course of events. And I might interject that 4,000 weeks in the title is a reference to the average lifespan. Right. It's an approximate 80 year, just shy of 80 years in, in weeks. Um, mm -hmm. and that, you know, I think what a lot of this advice does, and it's part of a much broader thing in the culture, is it basically acts to enable a kind of, um, emotional avoidance of facing up to this truth with, I argue, all sorts of deleterious consequences that it means we're kind of more distracted and more busy with stuff that doesn't really feel like it matters. And that, you know, yeah, this is why I don't think it's a cause for despair, because I think that the more that uh, we can sort of edge towards facing this reality, that actually provides a far um, firmer footing for, uh, you know, 
getting around to stuff that counts. So a big part of the sort of critical part of the book, I hope lots of it is constructive as well, is like trying to show how obsessing about becoming more efficient and optimized in how you handle your work, for example, it's basically a recipe for feeling even more busy and still never getting around to the things that matter the most. Um, sort of constantly living in the future and never getting to the point where it, um, where you actually do the things that you feel like you're you're here on on the planet to do. Okay. Um, now it's your belief that the kind of crisis of time management. You don't use that term, but I do think there are a lot of people who are trying to figure out how to use their time, and it's a, the question is a source of great anxiety to them. And and it's your belief that this is to a large extent a product. Of our times. It has not always been thus for humankind. And, and, uh, in fact, maybe not so long ago was quite different. In fact, I remember a time, uh, when it was, I believe, different. Yeah. I mean, there's sort of two different time scales. We can talk about either of them. One is the sense that, yeah, really it's just in the last few decades that the pressures on the sort of average person and even the average person with a high status job and a well paying job. That's the sort of great irony of this. It's, it's, um, that the pressure has become sort of near universal just in the last few decades to, to sort of, to feel. There's a lot of evidence that suggests we're not busier than we were, but to feel as though, um, just staying afloat is dependent on doing a greater number of things than it's possible for a person to do. And I think mm-hmm. that has reached a sort of a, a sort of a threshold in the last few decades. There's another perspective going back to like why it was that medieval peasants weren't bothered by time, which is a much sort of deeper thing about how you think about time in the first place and whether you think of it as something to be used well or or, or whether that whole idea is kind of a modern a modern idea as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it just occurred to me not long ago, that there may be people so young, possibly including some who are listening or watching now, who actually don't know what the derivation of the term inbox is. In other words, they've never seen a physical inbox. Maybe that's wrong. But, you know, when my uh, – I remember my father, who was an army officer, on his desk, there was a stack of two trays. One said in, one said out. And his secretary would come and put documents in the inbox. Might be a memo he had to read and respond to a letter from somebody, feedback from a superior, who knows, something he had to deal with. He would deal with it and then put the, 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 the result in the outbox, maybe a marked up document or something. And he used to tell me that he wouldn't come home until the inbox was empty, but this he didn't tell me, but this is the fact I observed mm-hmm. once he was home. He was done with work. Right. <laughs> I mean, occasionally there might be a phone call. But by and large, I remember what, him sitting in front of the CBS Evening News with a scotch and some peanuts pretty much every <laughs> night. Right. And, 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 and again, if, if the, I guess if the inbox was too cluttered, he might miss that. But once he was home, he was home and you just never, and God knows weekends were inviolable. Mm-hmm. But that's all gone, right? Right, right. Yeah, and no, absolutely. That's a kind of a lovely image, isn't it? It's that sense of like that that you could get to the end of it on a regular mm-hmm. basis, and it wouldn't torment you after that, right? And 
we could talk for forever about how far this is a technologically driven change, the fact that you can so seamlessly access email and answer email in bed at 11 o'clock at night or whatever, versus the, and, and the way that the economic system that, that sort of sits on top of that and, and, uh, and utilizes it to sort of, uh, wring more and more out of us. I suppose in the book, I am focusing more on the ideas that that gives rise to in us, because I hope that this book has some sort of personal use for people and it isn't solely saying we, we need to completely reshape society, which, you know, we do, but, but, but I also need to deal with my to-do list this week. Um, and so I think there's a, I think, a big part of the problem here is like, it's not only that we have these impossible infinite inboxes, but that you sort of collaborate with that psychologically, right? When you, when you go through life in the belief that if you find the right system or applied enough self-discipline, you'd, you'd get through it all, which obviously mathematically you're not going to, if it's really infinite, what's, what's coming in. Um, and I think that keeps people on a sort of a treadmill, sort of waiting for the future moment when they're finally on top of it all and they finally sort of got their lives in, in working order. Um, and there's a lot to be said for just sort of, uh, refusing to collaborate with that, even if you're not in a position to, you know, walk out of your job and, uh, go and go and live on a mountaintop instead. Right. So I guess, um, I don't know. I mean, in terms of the, I, I mean, you alluded to technology, certainly a fair amount of this is technological, right? Just in terms of what's, uh, possible. I, I mean, you know, the number of people who have, uh, the ability to reach you at any moment. I mean, even the number of people who even have the ability to make your smartphone buzz. Right. You know, I mean, <laughs> you know, let alone email. Um, that just changes the, the texture of life and it changes expectations, right? It's like, <clears throat> I assume, you know, bosses, uh, many bosses now, uh, think that if they send an email on Saturday, you know, they should get one back on Saturday. Um, right. And, you know, even if, even if that boss doesn't, um, there's a sort of framework of expectations that is sort of created by that, that, that sort of gradually sort of seeps through the culture, even if you, even if you try to resist it in a, whether you're in a leadership position or the person on the other end. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now you, um, it's, it sounds like you tried in the course of researching this book to follow a lot of the standard advice. You, tr you, you tried inbox zero for a while, right? I still do sometimes. And yeah, I mean, what I, I, not during this book, I mean, this book sort of came after writing this column for years for the guardian, where one of the things I did was sort of write about new developments in productivity and organization and, and all this stuff. And some of it was kind of useful, but I think I ended up using that column sort of as a kind of, uh, crutch for a, um, bad psychological tendency to sort of, um, in that I, in that I sort of, yeah, I, I tried all these things constantly feeling like I was going to sort of finally find the way of organizing tasks or scheduling the day or whatever that was going to get me through to this time when I would feel no longer so sort of insecure and anxious. And so this book is really the, an exploration of time that comes from after sort of finally realizing that, you know, this, this wasn't going to work, which maybe it took me a, an unusually long time to, uh, realize. But. And we should say 
this isn't entirely a council of surrender. <laughs> you, you do, there are specific approaches you recommend in terms of, of actually, in some sense, making your, yourself more efficient. Um, but still, uh, the, the thing that does, I think, distinguish this from a lot of books is your emphasis on at least interrogating, uh, the whole notion of, uh, time management. I mean, let me, let me quote from your own book. You write, this strange moment in history when time feels so unmoored might in fact provide the ideal opportunity to reconsider our relationship with it. That's pretty deep. <laughs> well, it's a deep promise. Whether it fulfills it is uh, up to you and other people. But, um, yeah, I think, I mean, the thing I really want to insist on in the, the sort of top level idea here is that facing up to at least a bit the reality of the situation the fact that you can't do everything can't get on top of it all can't reasonably know very much about what's happening three weeks into the future all this kind of facing reality is like there's absolutely not a council of despair like that's the first step to um kind of getting purchased on reality and making the tough decisions that you have to make the trade-offs the deciding which things you're going to focus on and which things you're going to inevitably neglect as a result and it's precisely all these kind of doctrines of here's how to become a perfectly super optimized machine that lead us away from getting that stuff done so i think it's not hopeless at all i think it's like you know um actually do a few things that count instead of thinking about how one day you might do um, an infinite number of things but never but never getting around to the ones that count i mean so for me certainly it's a sort of it's a relief i'm not saying i'm sort of perfectly accepting of mortality or anything any more than anyone else but like to the extent that i am that i sort of see the the limitations that i have and the ways i use time management systems now that really acknowledge those limitations you know i that's a huge relief because it's like oh okay i can stop trying to do this thing that was never possible in the first place um and and you know uh, do something that's possible instead yeah so why is it so psychologically hard to do that um i mean there are different there are different dimensions of the challenge it's saying no to people Sometimes, um, it's saying nothing to people sometimes, right? Like, uh, you know, as you note in the book, uh, people have the power to just enter your inbox from anywhere in the world, including people you barely know or don't know at all. Um, I mean, what, what are the, what are the most, uh, what are some painful things associated with making the adjustment you recommend? Um, and kind of narrowing, just narrowing your your conception of the things you actually want to get done i mean you're right on the on the top level i think one would say that it's all in some way an expression of sort of uh the rejection of being finite and mortal right it's this sense that you want to achieve a feeling of kind of i find this hard to express in a single phrase but like to sort of get people kind of want to get on top of and outside of their lives to be sort of the masters of them and that you know in mythology this is all about wanting to be a god instead of uh accepting your your humanness and all of that so when it comes down to the sort of the the the, the sort of day-to-day -day level though yeah i think it means it's various different forms of discomfort it's the discomfort of knowing that someone might be kind of mad at you because they're not you're not provide you're not responding to the thing they they um 
wanted you to respond to the discomfort of knowing that like certain obligations that you think are definitional of being a good decent person um like you maybe can't do them all maybe you can't keep a tidy home if you're going to really focus on work and parenting uh, for example um just to get personal about it um in my case i mean uh things like you know on the other end of the scale you know maybe it's not obligations maybe it's ambitions maybe you're the kind of person who is who has like 10 thrilling businesses they want to launch and the privilege to have the position to launch a few of them but like you still have to let things go and sort of wave goodbye to possibilities every time you choose to do one thing rather than the other and and one of the things i argue in the book is that i think the great appeal of specifically digital distraction is the phenomenology of it right the fact that it feels unlimited it feels like you're sort of floating in a sort of godlike realm somehow where the limitations of the material world don't apply it's lovely when you're sort of working on a piece of writing and being brought up against the fact that you only got so much time to finish it and you don't know if you have the skill to communicate the thing you want to communicate like it's just so lovely to sink into the warm bath of twitter where you feels like you can you know be whoever you want and learn whatever you want to instantaneously and and be not subject to all those kinds of uh fixed fixed limits it's not true i think you know you're not you're not really limitless which is why it turns out to be a sort of deleterious way to fritter away your time but it but it that's the appeal i think it's like it's it, it's the opposite of that so you're saying part, that discomfort. part of the problem is just the the availability of infinite distraction? Well, I mean, one of the points I make in the book is maybe that no, maybe, I mean, certainly Silicon Valley is better than anyone has ever been in history at, at sort of um, uh, monetizing our urge to distract ourselves. But no, it's actually the urge to distract yourself that is the first first thing there, right? It's like, it's not, for me anyway, it's not that I'm sort of rapturously writing along and I'm I'm dragged against my will to go and check social media. It's quite the opposite. You, I'm finding it discomforting and annoying or boring and and challenging sure. to to do the writing. So that seems like just such a lovely rest. Sure, but when this happened to me 35 years ago, that option just wasn't there. The online world wasn't there. And, right. Yeah. And, and 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 you just had to deal with it. I, I mean, there was remarkably limited information in your immediate environment in those days yeah. you know it's yeah. like books on shelf that was it and right. most of them weren't very interesting you know right. the, because the, you were at yeah. work not at home the distinction here is that you can if you go and stare out the window because you're feeling frustrated I, at confronting i did a lot of that right but the difference is that the window is not designed by psychologists to keep you staring at it as long Although as possible after say, you started. Although I will say, as it happens, when I worked at the New Republic in Washington, okay. not far, just kind of across an alley, more or less, was a whole other office building. And you could spend a lot of time becoming immersed in the dynamics of different workplaces and even <laughs> become, acquainted, become acquainted, in a sense, with individual <laughs> people you would never meet. Yeah. Um, so it's true that the mind is good at uh, creating the opportunity for distraction, but man, it is bad these days. The other, the other thing is that, of course, Twitter itself, for you and me, uh, you know, people who write, Twitter is itself part of our professional lives. And, and it seems like the, um, you know, there's two, there's two problems here. There's like 
it's the number of things that it's just tempting to do that may or may not be part of work and uh, may well not be. But then there's also the sense that you there's always something more you could do for your professional life, right? Right. I mean, you could always try to pick up a few Twitter followers, which is good for your professional life. You could always right. try to tweet something that would draw a few more page clicks for something you've written. Yeah. There's the, there's this incredibly incremental range of opportunities along with incremental feedback, right? Yeah. You see, yeah. you see whether it was successful or not and, yeah. and how successful it was. It's, it's all, uh, it's all deeply disturbing. And I mean, I think that. Yeah. And I think that there's a sort of question maybe in the background of what you just said, which is like how much of this is a sort of uh, problem of journalists and writers and podcasters. And I think, you know, the examples I'm choosing to do with working on a piece of writing and then going to Twitter, that is a very sort of media land kind of uh, set of examples. But anyone in a, I think, pretty much in a, in a sort of broadly in what gets called knowledge work today, you know, there's always another article you could read in a professional publication or another web or another blog post that seems like it might be useful. There is sort of no limit to the number of emails you could send people to try to generate work. You know, that in all these different, in all these different ways, there is this kind of, there's a sense that, um, that there's no stopping point with, mm-hmm. with the work that you could do. And then there's this pressure that comes from behind pushing you to do more of it, to, um, to keep up and to, uh, be competitive. And a point you make is that if you, if you don't narrow, you know, your, your, your range of activity in some sense, um, if you don't, uh, you know, just exclude some, some options, um, you often just wind up, uh, deepening the problem in an immediate sense. In other words, like, I've had this experience, like, there's these three emails I kind of like didn't want to confront. And, and then I finally, I say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm tired of these haunting me. And you reply to all three and then you realize that what you've done is in one case, you've agreed to, you know, you've committed yourself to do something you don't really want to do. In another <laughs> case, you know that the email is going to lead to a reply that you're going to have to deal with. And then maybe in the third case, you actually got it off your desk. But, um, this is, this is one of the problems, right? Right. Yeah. I think, you know, the, the, could go different ways with this, but one of the things that happens very swiftly, if you don't have any kind of filter, um, coming in, in terms of what you take on. And if, and the reason, a big reason why people don't have that filter is because they do on some level believe that there must be a way for them to do all, to, to take care of all the demands that are made on them. Um, if you don't have any filter, then, then just naturally, right? The, the persistent demands of other people will come to, will come to dominate every incoming thing, everything that crosses your um, desk. You're not going to ask the question, is it important enough to, um, for something else to make way for it? And so, you know, in- inevitably it just fills with more and more meaningless stuff. And of course, you know, there are plenty of people in professional situations where it's precisely the bullshit that you absolutely can't say no to because like you have to because those are the those are the terms of the of the job but i think it's still you know it remains the case that for everybody um an impossible amount of things cannot be done um and and you have to reckon with that one way or another even if the conclusion you come to is actually for now not getting fired from this job where i have to do this stuff is my top priority 
um, you're, you're still not going to get around the math of it. Something is still going to have to fall out. And I think, you know, the more conscious we can be about the fact that that's happening, um, mm -hmm. the better choices we'll make. So there's a, you know, if you, if you accept that you just have to get less ambitious in some sense, in terms of the number of, of things you hope to accomplish in a given day or a week or something, the question arises, which things do you, do you dump and which things do you do? Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and, and a certain amount of the book is about that. And there's a kind of a, a philosophy of life, uh, implied at least in your answer and sometimes stated, right? I mean, yeah, I, one thing I really wanted to avoid in writing this book was a kind of laundry list approach, right? I didn't want to be like, these are the things I think that someone should spend their limited time on. I wanted, first of all, to kind of trust the reader that they probably do know on some intuitive level, mainly, like which of the things that they use up their life on are really meaningful and fulfilling and which ones are not. And then also I wanted to sort of point out that the, that the patterns that I'm pointing to here about how trying to do too much leads to doing, to never getting around to the most important stuff and how efficiency, um, has all these pitfalls that kind of applies to whatever you're doing. So even if somebody totally authentically wants nothing more than to own 10 sports cars as the most uh, fulfilling thing they can imagine doing in life, in a way, I want to say like, that's not for me to get involved in. You still shouldn't be trying to um, do this by sort of uh, launching yourself at futile uh, kinds of impossible aims for your productivity or for your or for your control over your time. That's another thing about it, right? I think a, a big part of the philosophy here, I think, um, and I'm sort of lecturing at myself as much as anything else, I suppose, is is sort of understanding the true limit to how much you can sort of feel certain about what's coming down the pike in in life and uh, how much uh, how much more peaceful a way it is to live when you sort of can get a bit uh, can get to some level of uh, uh, you know acceptance of that right I, I mean to some extent this it's a it's a book about making decisions I, I mean and not not just not just decisions about which email to respond to right but like life decisions. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, what I, what I hope is that if I can sort of convey this sense of what it means to sort of turn towards your finitude instead of constantly trying to dull the feeling of it, then the decisions, they don't make themselves at all. I mean, people can be put in totally agonizing situations by their lives, but like, it does become a lot clearer. For example, that like, you know, um, there's a whole, chunk in there about how um burning of bridges sort of making commitments that you can't go back on uh, are you know so much more often fulfilling than keeping your options open because keeping your options open really just means sort of preserving the feeling of not having to make uh tough choices and i think when people go through that process of of seeing the point here which is that like you know you're always deciding and you're always cutting off possibilities every day just by doing anything at all. So you might as well do it consciously. I think it tends to clarify things for people a lot, right? They tend to be like, well, of, of course, I I know wh which of these decisions to take. But I don't know. Are you talking about something specific? I, are you, were you thinking of, 
I, I try not to sort of tell people in the book like these are the six things you should spend well, your no. Your I will life say, on. I mean, there, I, I can, I can see though uh, some things, some schools of thought <clears throat> that inform uh, the book. <clears throat> I would say one of them is I don't, I don't, I don't think you make a big deal of the word, but I would say one of them is actually mindfulness. Yes, although I'd sense. like to hear more because I, yeah, I don't. I always get very confused about what the word means. But yes, well, yeah. I, I think I mean for starters, there's a point where you say, uh, "It's a, I, did I write this down?" But it's it, it's about um, again, you don't say being mindful, but you say kind of oh oh here it is. Learn to stay with the anxiety of feeling overwhelmed, of not being on top of everything without automatically responding by trying to fit more in. Because, of course, what the the normal response to that anxiety is to try to reduce it by getting something done. Yeah. And and you and and this this is this is not the only time in the book where I thought of the word mindfulness, but it is an example of you're being literally mindful of the anxiety. Uh, ideally in a way that removes some of its power and, and, and just lets you come to terms with the reality it represents rather than try to change it by changing the reality. Yeah, I think that's totally right. It's funny because I, as you know, I've done not as much as you, but I have done a bit of, um, a bit of the meditation retreat stuff. And I suppose now I tend to come at, think about this more in kind of, uh, sort of depth psychology, psychoanalytic terms or something, but it comes to the same thing, right? Which is, which is taking a, a sort of stance on your emotions and your other mental activity that allows you to, um, to, to feel it, to experience it without automatically acting on it. And almost the not acting on it almost follows automatically from the, clear seeing of it right because i think what we're doing most of the time uh as in trying to get rid of a feeling of anxiety by getting more done is you're not even really focusing on the feeling of anxiety you're you're straight through into the um internal command to to get something done so yeah mm -hmm. anything that involves just like seeing what's going on in your mind for what it is uh gets you a little bit a little bit free of that i think and may give you time to decide whether it's what you might call valid anxiety, at least in the, in the sense of actually originating from the priorities that you actually want, right? right I mean, right. you can at least, at least gives you time to ask the question, wait a second, uh, is, is this something I should try to not, not be anxious about? Because actually it doesn't mean that much and I should cut it out of my life. There's an interesting tension actually, because I, the, one of the things that I'm always, I never know what to make of in the Buddhist and mindfulness approaches to all this stuff is the implication that at least in the perfect ideal case, you would become like, you would have perfect peace of mind about, uh, this situation of finitude and mm -hmm. being part of reality and being limited and all the rest of it. And one of the things that comes out of my brief and hopefully humorous attempts to grapple in the book with, with, uh, Heidegger, who, you know, you can't ignore if you're going to be talking about living no, in. No, living but you shouldn't the... talk about him without trying to inject some humor. I, I, and, and I thought you did a good job. <laughs> Thank you. It's a and job you should that has to be done. You should also acknowledge the fact that he was, he was literally a Nazi. Nazi. Yeah. Yes. Um, but something that comes out of at least my uh, take on on him is that you know a certain kind of anxiety is built into the situation here. Um, 
that that what you get when you face up to anxiety and and decline all the distraction and the sort of neurotic activities that we use to make the feelings go away what you get in return is you still feel pretty anxious but you are living authentically in some way and you are sort of facing up to what it really means to be here and doing stuff that you can feel proud of and that matters but not that you're going to become completely chilled out about it which yeah. always strikes me as a, an emphasis in the in the mindfulness I mean style. one fear that people express about well about just mindfulness meditation but uh might m- might uh express to you about this book is well wait will I become so apathetic that I don't get anything done and right. and uh, and and 20 years from now I'm making the same salary if if I even still have a job and and so on right and the two responses to that are you know one is fully stolen from you which is like let's cross that bridge when we come to it if you manage to um sort of become so enlightened by one or other meaning of that word that this becomes a risk then then you're that's a good good problem to have but secondly i actually think as i sort of hinted at before i I don't think that's the i don't think apathy is the is the conclusion here at all there's two there's two things i'm anxious to sort of push away push back against one is that this is a sort of um recipe for despair but the other is that it's a recipe for that sort of incredibly high stress carpe diem you know this idea that you've really got to try to get the most out of every single moment Mm -hmm. which in itself is still an attempt to sort of burst past your limits i think to sort of be more be more and do more than it's possible to do i think that if your your sense of what a meaningful life is, is tailored to fit the capacities that human beings have or can be more tailored to fit that. That's a wonderful situation. That's neither a despair situation nor a, nor a kind of, um, high pressure white knuckle situation. That's just like the clothes fit, you know, and you can, and you can do some good, possible, meaningful, practical things for real in the world now, you know, um, certainly been my experience of of getting a bit better at this i don't claim perfection for sure mm-hmm. but like you know comparing myself as a hugely anxious productivity geek at in my late 20s or whatever to to now so um before we leave heidegger <laughs> which we should do before we yes leave. very quickly uh just a couple of phrases i don't know if you care to expound on them fine but that 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 I'm sure strike a lot of people as curious. He said something like, it isn't just that we have a limited amount of time. We are a limited amount of time. Sounds like there's something deep there. And then he also, then he had this phrase being towards death, which is a little bit grim. If you, if you want to talk about either of those things or both or their connection, feel free. Yeah, I'll try. I mean, with the caveat that, um, I just like, the professional Heidegg scholar who is tuning into this, uh, just needs to cut me a huge break because my goal was to sort of explore and then react to, but I'm, there are caveats abound in the book that, you know, it's not, it's not, I'm not saying this is some sort of, um, canonical interpretation of Heidegger necessarily. It's my best attempt. I, I think that, um, this idea that we are time, you can sort of back into by just sort of, thinking of the, the idea that I think for Heidegger and for a, a certain strain of thinking on this, it's not just that like our limited time 
is one of the things that we have to cope with in life, along with all the other really annoying things that we have to cope with. It's, it's so definitional of who you are that it, that it defines who you are before you start trying to cope with anything, right? You just, you just exist as a conscious being in the space between birth and death. Time passes whether you like it or not. Um, every day you're closing off an infinity of op- opportunities and possibilities as a result of every path that you do take through that time. Um, it doesn't really make sense to, when you really start to think about it as, as saying that time is something that you, that you have. And I think this is where lots of the trouble comes from when it comes to trying to control time and master time. It's that it's much more the medium in which our life unfolds than it is, um, right. A, a resource that we have access to in our, in our lives. And uh, lots of other people have expressed this in other ways. There's a lovely, um, quote from, uh, Borges, which puts it a lot more, um, eloquently than Heidegger, um, uh, about, you know, time is a river in which I find myself, but I am the river and a bunch of other, yeah. um, analogies. There's something really powerful about this because it, it shows you and I think this is the difference between us as modern people and, say, um, early medieval peasants. It shows you that we have come to have this kind of alienated relationship to time where there's like there's you and there's time. And it's like a yardstick that's ticking, but or mixing metaphors. But, you know, there's something separate from your life that you're trying to keep up with or trying yeah. to fit things into. And they didn't have that view. And I think, you know, it's lots of sort of indigenous peoples at various points in history have also l- lacked that kind of alienation. It's just like life just happens. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and the problem is the, the problem is in the disidentifying from this aspect of your life and then trying to kind of get on top of it or yeah. master it because you're doing something that is, that sort of betrays the fundamental situation you're in, which yeah. is that you're just here. For yeah, a bit. no, in a, in a way, it's almost <laughs> the only thing. It's about as abstract as I should get, I think. No, but it, but it's 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 worth thinking about, and I hadn't really thought about it. It's like the it's like I'm trying to think of something else in the in the universe that you just cannot change your relationship to. You actually can't change your relationship to time, right? And uh, normally when we say we have something, I mean, we say, well, I have a lot of time. I have this, I have that. Normally when you say you have something, it means you could manipulate it. You could change its its form. You could do something to it. But time we can't do anything at all to unless right. you want to like take advantage of the principles of relativity and go up in a spaceship and come back and have uh, aged a nanosecond uh more slowly or something. Right. Um, but, but by and large, we, those of us who are going to stay on earth, uh, <laughs> travel at reasonable speeds, um, uh, can't do anything at all, which is, you know, uh, kind of a downer in a way. <laughs> right. And I think, yeah, you can see that you can see all the trouble resulting from the fact that you're right about that, but we don't take it on board. So all that happens in the attempt to manipulate time is that we bend ourselves into sort of crazy pretzels to try to fit more into time. And you can fit more into time, right? Because you can change your behavior relative to time so that more gets yeah, done. Yeah, and essentially like, you do that. That's what right. we try to right. do is, right. is we, we think of the yardstick as there and we try to mush more stuff into an increment. But that, yeah, exactly. But there's a, but there's an, and there's another very sort of deep aspect to this. I quote a writer and blogger who I really like called David Kane, who runs a blog called Raptitude. Um, that, um, 
you know, we, when you really think about it, we, you never have time and you can, you, you mentioned this just before, right? I mean, you don't, doesn't come into your possession. You don't have, if you think you, his example, you know, if you think you have three hours or three days in which to complete some undertaking, what you really mean is you expect it and you have good reason to believe that, uh, you know, things aren't going to happen to do with like your health or the plane crashing or um, a piano falling on your head that, that would prevent you from doing it. And so if you take planning at all kind of in a sort of, if you, if you think that planning is in some sense sort of controlling the future, you're always going to be running into this problem. Your gears are always going to be grinding between the fact that you're sort of trying to, you're trying to deal with the time you have, but you never actually have it. You always know on some level that like anything could happen at any moment. There's a lovely quote, and I use it in the book from Joseph Goldstein, the, the, uh, this is, this is the other tip off to the, the undercurrent of mindfulness is the number of people you quote <laughs> who I've either, you know, right. uh, uh, even Mary Oliver, the, 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 probably the poet most quoted at meditation retreats. I right. see. No you, doubt. You, yes. You quote yeah, at least absolutely. Once. Yeah. I think that, I think one day I might be able to like give a Dharma talk. I think that's my like, that's my, that's, I might, I might have enough quotes and jokes. I I think you have unrealized (laughs) guru potential in you, but I'll tell you, I think you better get busy. You know, it's time is, time waits for no guru. Joseph Goldstein says that what we forget is that a plan is just a thought, right? That, that, um, that, um, it's totally fine at nine o'clock in the morning sitting at your desk to formulate a sort of present moment statement of the of intention about how you would like the day to go to the extent that you get to um, influence that. But if you think or even subconsciously think that you're sort of throwing a, 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 a framework like a straitjacket around the future, you know, that you're sort of that you're sort of um, you're exerting control over it from the present, um, then it's just a recipe for um anxiety because you're going to be you know you you're constantly moving into the next moment the next moment waiting to see if things uh accord to your intentions and so i think that's why sort of compulsive planning something that i feel like i and my family have a history of in my Hmm. childhood um i think that's what that is right it's a response to anxiety that that tries constantly tries and always will fail to sort of know for sure how the future is going to unfold because of course you can't know that for sure yeah i mean the other uh i mean as long as we're on the subject of of joseph goldstein and who for people who don't know uh co-founded the insight meditation society where i've done meditation retreats and and he's he's one of the main people in kind of uh american uh buddhism i guess uh the um i i mean there's uh, there's a lot in in the book about a well uh, some in the book about appreciating you know stopping and smelling the roses kind of the phrase probably doesn't appear but appreciating uh you know appreciating the moment and so on uh, just stuff that felt very meditation retreaty yeah i think i mean one of the things that um one of the angles that kind of we that it's easily sight of is that the um when, when you're really focused on trying to make the best use of time, even if you're doing that in some way that, that prioritizes, you know, community and compassion and relationships rather than 
making a lot of money and 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 rising up the ladder whatever you're spending it on if you're incredibly focused on this sort of instrumental question of am i making the best use of it now it has the effect of putting the whole value of life at some future point right that it, it mm-hmm. sort of postpones the it, it inherently postpones the meaning of life to some point in the future because the value of what you're doing now is all for some future thing and there's a lovely quote from john maynard Keynes that i use about how the the this person in this kind of mindset doesn't really love his cat but only his cat's kittens and not really even his kittens the cat's kittens but the kittens kittens you know you're never quite you're never quite at the point that things are supposed to be about and for me that's the really powerful way of thinking about like being in the moment i have certain amount of difficulty with kind of you know the meditate on this flower or the textures of this raisin or the things mm-hmm. that are so you know prevalent in that kind of american buddhist culture but it just like at some point at some point the value of life has to be now otherwise there is no point you know? yeah that's <clears throat> true i suppose uh, <laughs> <laughs> well i mean but here here's here's the thing like uh Wait, let me see if... Um... You clearly object to that. It'd be much more interesting to hear your objection. The um, Well, let me read a quote uh, by way of, of getting to the objection. It's not an objection, but here's a quote from the book. The unfashionable but powerful notion of letting time use you, approaching life not as an opportunity to implement your predetermined plans for success, but as a matter of responding to the needs of your place and your moment in history. Okay, so what if you decide that uh, the needs of your place and your moment in history um, compel you to try to exert influence in a given realm? You know, some say a foreign policy debate or something, or, you know, th- there's some kind of influence you want to have, Right. It seems to me that a lot of the people who are having influence in a lot of realms are people who aren't doing what this book recommends. You know, so I kind of wonder how well armed I'm going to be. You, you know what I mean, right? It's like the fact is there are a lot of, uh, driven, mm-hmm. pretty anxious, not especially pleasant if you really get to know them people, or maybe it's the other way around, not especially, well, often not especially pleasant people, uh, who accomplish a lot in life in mm-hmm. conventional terms and, and correspondingly exert influence on things like the future of the planet. Mm-hmm. And, and if, you know, if you would like to be a voice and, uh, in that realm, you, you, you take my point probably, right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's the, the, I guess you're saying that, you know, even if, I guess it gets to a really sort of deep question in kind of psychology and almost psychotherapy, right? Which is, if certain ways of sort of being neurotic and trying to escape from your emotions and not feel your feelings, if they can, if they can lead to kind of useful and productive action as they obviously do a lot of the time not everybody mm-hmm. becomes a sort of disastrous president or a sort of tyrannical boss or something out of these out of this kind of avoidance then isn't that useful sure but isn't that just the flip side of the question if i get so enlightened through buddhism won't i 
won't I stop doing it, anything? It, it I mean, kind of is. I mean, I, I want to make the argument in here that like peace of mind and living authentically in reality is compatible with doing meaningful stuff. Now, I guess there is an argument that somebody would make. There's a sort of, I can see an argument that, um, I mean, I don't think it is his argument, but I would associate it with somebody, one of these kind of thinkers like Charles Eisenstein, who writes about economics from a kind of spiritual perspective. You might want to argue that the ultimate fruit of actions um, pursued in that mindset can't ever be can't ever be good somehow that if what you're seeking is control and dominance and uh freedom from the real insecurity of reality that it that it's going to feed through at some point into the end results you know what i mean you come across that argument sometimes i don't know yeah. that i i buy it and i also don't know that it's charles eisenstein's but it's it's a it's that sort of idea that like yeah. the, the 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 individual and the world stage are so completely interlinked and part of each other that like you're not going to get away with actually making the world a better place in the long run if yeah. you're doing it to sort of deny and, and things. I think I mean I think it's certainly <clears throat> true that focusing on the kind of on kind of combating the the rival influencers leads you to do a lot of stuff that probably doesn't isn't even useful on its own terms in other words doesn't help you do the combat um the uh but uh I I guess in a way I'm I'm this is related to a question I could ask about the book. Might as well do it now, which is, is the claim that letting go of the productivity obsession will A, make you more productive, B, maybe, maybe make you less productive, but happier, C, uh, make you more productive, uh, by the lights, that you will use after the transformation induced by this book, which are better lights. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, uh, is that, are those three options clear? And you yeah. can say none yeah. of the above. No, it's C. It's C, right. I mean, it's, uh, and again, I want a, a certain part of this book is about my sort of grappling with this. So I don't ever want to sort of imply that this is a book about sort of me on high explaining to uh, how to achieve spiritual transcendence like I have or something. It's, it's much more about like how we together sort of try to grapple with these tendencies. But yes, I think that it's about making your life more meaningful, which is, which, which to me means productive in some way that is not sheer quantity and is not other people's desires for your life, but are, but is your own and is in some way sort of done in relation with others in the world instead of in a solitary way um i do think there's a point here as well isn't there which i guess gets feels like a bit more existentialist or something in its in its uh in its implications but like i don't think this it, it, i think it can also infuse certain choices with meaning that you might not otherwise think were meaningful things to do with your life right so i'm sensitive to the to the sort of imagined criticism books not out yet it might be a very real criticism quite soon um that like you know the implication that you have the freedom to leave your work or to structure your day differently that, that you'll see at certain points in this book is an assumption based on a certain amount of you know a certain amount of uh privilege and and what if that's just 
what if that somebody for whom that's just no sort of option at all? But I think there you can see that, like, again, if a if a sort of full and honest reckoning with your situation in life makes it clear to you that actually a job that you consider totally meaningless in its details is the most meaningful thing you can be doing because the things that you get from that job in terms of supporting yourself or your family are the things that matter to you most and more fulfilling work options aren't uh, a credible option in the place and time you find yourself, then in a way you've sort of made that, you've made that work meaningful by default. And I, you know, I don't want to, I'm very lucky and I do enjoy my, my work, but like you, I've seen this in certain bits of, rearing a child and thinking back to sort of changing diapers of a, of a newborn, you know, there are, there are, there's a certain kind of like, I'm in my proper place because this is, this is adding up to something that matters, even when the activities themselves might be like totally crap. Mm -hmm. So to speak. But I also, you know, I think so. I think, I think, I hope what someone will get out of this book is that they would, to within the range of choice they do have to make bold changes, they could they would feel empowered to do that. But also, to the extent that they don't have that option, I think it's you know there's a way of seeing, of understanding life, uh, so that you are sort of coming back to what matters the most, mm -hmm. uh, even when you can't change your circumstances. And speaking of uh, finding yourself in a position where you're changing diapers, it, uh, you 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 emphasize the. Uh, you're not in favor of eternally keeping your options open, right? It's like sometimes you just have to take a flyer. And that can include doing things like getting married. Yeah, right. In fact, I argue that to the extent that you can bring yourself to close off options, like both the sort of social psychology research and I think um, anecdote and philosophy and all the rest of it sort of agrees that like that's the degree to which you will feel fulfilled by the choices that you do make not that people never make mistakes in those domains but um you know i think the the internet dating example is um is the sort of classic example here and i'm just my, my combination of age and life circumstances meant i just skipped um uh spending a significant amount of involvement in internet dating but talking to people <laughs> you know the sense that like there is effectively a limitless number of other options mm -hmm. Or at least potentially, um, makes it a lot harder to, um, see the value in the person that you're, that you're seeing at that moment. Um, especially given that the business model of most of the, most of those services is to keep people dissatisfied so they keep coming back and that it's sort of a, it's sort of a bad news if somebody, um, partners up for life and yeah. quits the, um, quits the, quits the service. I miss that boat too, but I know somebody who's actually a little older than me, and because he got divorced, he found himself employing that technology, and he found somebody he really liked. But then he thought, "Wow, that was easy." <laughs> you know, <laughs> right, maybe. right, right. And and he kind of did go and flirt with, but then finally uh, came back to uh, the, the uh, square one. And, and I certainly and, do belong. I certainly didn't miss generationally the demographic of people who um, sort of. Uh, act commitment phobically all through their thirties and finally settle down and become a parent old. Mm -hmm. Um, that, that's me to a T and, you know, I think there's a lot of truth in that thing that people often say, which is not that everything was great in the past when people's choices were more limited, but that if you grew up on, uh, an Island 
with kind of 20 appropriately aged members of the sex in which you were interested, you would, you'd, you'd choose someone and be perfectly happy with it, with their mm -hmm. choice. Um, just because like that would, because you wouldn't have this kind of tormenting sense that you ought to be looking elsewhere, going elsewhere, doing better. Yeah. Um, so now we said, uh, notwithstanding all this heavy philosophy and uh, reflection, <laughs> there are some, uh, you know, just just uh, traditional kind of, you know, tips and hacks and 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 uh, rules to live by. I don't know. I, I, I've got some that I could bring up, but are there things you want to uh, things you want to particularly emphasize? No, no, go, go for what. what well, I mean, for do. starters, there's the problem of, you know, uh, this includes things as mundane as just the, the, the technology itself that you're in the grips of. Uh, you talk about even using grayscale mode just to make your smartphone a little less tempting. I uh, got a new smartphone almost a year ago and just never put Twitter on it. And it's definitely, um, made a difference. Uh, I don't know. Maybe it's hurt my career or something. I don't know. <laughs> but, yeah, no, I think, I mean, I think, yeah, that's, uh, keeping technology as boring as you can is, you know, all these different techniques and we could talk about some others, but like the, the ones that work are the ones that embody this, that, that push you towards confronting limitation and finitude, right? So one, the reason that a grayscale phone or a single use, you know, I really love my Kindle e-reader. I, mm -hmm. I know not everyone does, but just because it's really difficult to do anything else on it but read the books that are on it. I mean, they introduced like a uh, long time ago now, they introduced much fancier ones that have proper working full color web browsers. I'm not going to go near one of those. That's a, that's a disaster. I have my, I have an iPad for when I want to be right. horribly distracted by, by things. Um, it's just another example of something that sort of reduces the lure of this kind of, oh, I can go to this limitlessly exciting realm. It's like, no, I'm going to write another paragraph of this thing and it's going to feel a little bit unpleasant because that's what doing things that matter feels like. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Another one that I really um, love uh, is just any form of, um, this is very, very like down to earth stuff, like how you organize your to-do list, but like, any form of task management uh, system that um, that has the effect of limiting your work in progress. So it has the effect of um, setting an upper limit of maybe three or four of the number of tasks or projects, depending on which sort of level of abstraction you want to think about, that you'll focus on at any one time. So a really simple way to do this is to like have two to-do lists, one that is as bottomless and that you just add everything to, and then a second one that has maybe five slots on it and you move tasks into those slots. And when there's five, you have to do one in order to free up a slot and bring another item from the long list onto the short list. So this is kind of a way of, does that make sense? The, well, the do you, do you never do anything on the long list until it has been moved to the short list? I mean, that's the ideal case. In reality, urgencies arise. In which case it's remarkably are, like a single long list, is it not? I mean, <laughs> well, it's a single long list, but that you have to select, you have to make a conscious okay. choice. So the bottom, beyond five, they're not ranked. Right. You could, you could do it with a single list and rank top five priorities. And then you have to work on those five before you can work, before you can move another one into the top five priorities. Yes, that would be a, 
the same. The okay. same so idea. basically, is neither list ranked? It's like just five things, and you can choose which one to do that morning. And then the other list is not ranked, and but the the only thing is there's five slots in one and. Yeah, infinite, right. Yeah. I like to not rank things because I yeah. want the freedom to like jump around, yeah. but I want the freedom to jump around to be limited to just five things. And I actually do this by means of a Kanban board and there's all sorts of fancy stuff that you can do. But the basic idea is just you're, you're working on five things and or four things or whatever. You're not going to work on any more until one of those five has been finished or you've done as much as you can before someone gets back to you or something. It's totally silly, really, right? I mean, it's nothing, it's nothing special, but it, but it has the effect of obliging you regularly throughout the day to decide what thing matters more than the other things. And then it also just contributes. So you're making choices all the time instead of sort of imagining that you're going to get to everything. Mm -hmm. And then it also just sort of, it just induces this kind of friction, this kind of useful, positive friction into the, into the day where you are like finishing things, maybe not big projects, maybe just little tasks that belong to a bigger project, but like where you're, you're seeing something to completion and you're not falling for this temptation to just bounce off to another 20 tasks as soon as one task gets difficult so that you feel quote productive, but you've actually made no serious inroads on anything. You're just sort of stewarding certain, a few things through to completion. And after a while, when the list begins to build up of the things that you've completed that way, it's, it's infinitely more satisfying than, you know, a day spent touching. 40, 40 things that you have on your plate, but so not. Do you like to look in and reflect on the list of completed things and pat yourself on the back? A little bit, yes. I mean, no, I'm not, I don't spend like, uh, long periods of time on it, but I think, um, I think some back patting is for most of us who are on some level driven and for whom it has some weird connection to our sense of self worth and feeling like we've got to justify our existence on the planet. It's really good to say, to keep some track of, you know, all the things you actually did today. Yeah. So is there software you recommend? There are so many, um, uh, apps now that, 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 um, operationalize, uh, Kanban boards. You, do you know what they are? This, this, this you know, Japanese I've management. I've come across the, I assume that is, is Trello an example of software? Trello, that... Trello is the archetypal example. Yes. I'm actually using Notion, which does a whole lot of other things as now, well. Now Notion, but, uh... well, I don't, I guess we don't want to get off on this, but <laughs> I find Notion kind of problematic. I have somebody, somebody works uh, for me who, who insists on using it. Um, but it's very different from Trello. One of the views that you can have of your items is a is similar to Trello. Well, maybe he should show me that view. Damn it! <laughs> <laughs> it's um, just this very physical sense of like, okay, this is a little thing, and I'm doing this, and it's at this status now, and then I'm going to move it away. It's so kind of, you know, it, it's it's almost sort of childlike in a way. But I but I need that so as not to sort of get into well. The these... critical thing is that it be available on both computer and smartphone for me, and that it you know update automatically and everything. And right. I guess these days you take that for granted. Right. But. but you can use a folded piece of paper with post-its on it. I mean, it's the, the principle is just, um, the principle is just moving things through a, a kind of self-created bottleneck yeah. that, um, that reflects the fact that you always were only working on a few things at once. You just were kidding yourself that, that a day spent doing that sequentially on a thousand things and getting nowhere on them was somehow 
productive or, or useful. Yeah. Now you've got an appendix called 10 tools for embracing your finitude. Uh, let me just read a few things and, uh, I'll read them a few at a time. And if there's one you want to pick up on, let me know. One is adopt a quote fixed volume approach to productivity. Another is serialize, serialize, serialize. And then this one's intriguing. Decide in advance what to fail at. Should we talk about that one? Yeah, sure. I mean, that I'm quoting in that section a, a writer called uh, John Acuff. So I give him the credit for this, but like, it's totally in keeping with, with what I'm saying here that, you know, if you are, if as a finite human with finite resources, finite time, you're inevitably not going to, uh, excel to a hundred percent in every imaginable domain of life, which is kind of a given, then there's a lot to be said for kind of deciding in advance which domains, at least for the next month or year, you're going to sort of deliberately, um, uh, um, sort of demote in your, in your, in your thinking. So that, you know, instead of constantly pursuing something called work-life balance, which actually just means 100% dedication to your work and 100% dedication to life outside work, which adds up to 200%, you could actually say like, you know what? I'm in a position where the next six months I really am just going to be a sort of fully work-focused person. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a, I'm a I'm, bad father. It happens. <laughs> children I mean, you know, get children get a, ruined. They have I, permanent scars. As I say, psychic scars. It's part of life. <laughs> as I say in the book, there are limits. Uh-huh. You can't you can't not feed your child. But even within, I think, being a perfectly good parent, you can say, and in agreement with a spouse, if you're you know talking about raising kids in the house, you know, kids who live at home with you, you can still say, you know, this. This period is primarily for this, and then the next one is primarily for that. And in that period, I'll get away with the, as little as I can in the work realm. Or there may be realms that you can sort of wave goodbye to semi-permanently, like, um, you know, being, uh, keeping an incredibly beautiful home or, or um, you know, having, being an impressive cook. I mean, there are lots of things you might choose to just completely and you will bring more of your focus. I, th- I think that probably in my experience so far as a parent, um, the times when I've managed to do this and be like, okay, I might, I'm not going to be super present for this week, but next week I've made it so that I can be. I think the, some, the end result of those two weeks is probably better for my son than the ones where I kid myself that I'm going to be super present in both realms uh, okay. all day, every day. See what I mean? Let me list a few more. Uh, we've covered some of these. So embrace boring and single purpose technology. We've kind of talked about. Yeah. Seek out novelty in the mundane is uh, kind of what I was one thing I was talking about when I accused you of mindfulness. Uh, yeah. Well, that is, that is totally a, that is totally a mindfulness. Then consolidate thing. your caring. That's number five. Uh, do you want to talk? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, that's just this idea that, um, one of the ways in which I think we're encouraged to try to um, exceed our built-in limitations today, especially through social media and the media in general, is by being sort of presented with more things that deserve our compassion or our political activism or some other aspect of our sort of public selves than anyone ever could um, hope to cope with. And vastly more than like even the sort of greatest 
saints of the of history were would ever be exposed to right i mean the if you think that being a good member of humanity means really really caring about every really bad thing that you hear about then you're sort of um going to become completely useless very very quickly and so this is an argument um for kind of the idea that you know when it comes to those sort of realms politics <clears throat> activism charity um it might be really worth kind of picking um one or two areas to care about and almost sort of deliberately cultivating uh a lack of care about the others right i mean this relates to a piece that i wrote for the guardian a while ago as well where you know this idea that if you if you're not this idea that if you're not outraged you're not paying attention this whole sort of idea that like if you if you that's so popular still today that if you sort of look at the injustices in the world and you're and you're complacent about any one of them you're not doing your your duty but actually that idea that if you're not outraged you're not paying attention is totally belongs to a sort of pre-attention economy um right world right because now every single cause must present itself as the 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 most important cause like nobody's ever going to send you a fundraising email saying that their that their cause is the fourth most important problem facing america or the world it's got to be the first and so they're just competing in the attention uh battlefield and so i think we sort of have to start becoming doing something that looks like callousness in certain ways um in order to be effective in one or two such uh domains that, that matter to us yeah it's like i have a real interest in um <clears throat> policy challenges that can only be met internationally they're intrinsically mm -hmm. international problems and I actually don't spend that much time talking about climate change, not because it's not important, but because I just think a lot of people are talking about it. And and uh, there are problems that I think it's not that I think they're more important or more pressing than climate change. It's just I think relative to the amount of attention they're getting, they're needier. Um, right, right. No, I can tell you, I mean, your your um, focus on foreign policy stuff is like, yeah, that that needs to be done, doesn't it? Because you're in it. We're in a especially in the US in a, in a politics where people, you know, frequently campaign and win elections with sort of absolutely zero uh, concern for what, for what they're doing. In See, that, I in can't that think of any recent examples of that, but maybe one <laughs> will spring to mind. Uh, so I don't think I'll go through any of the other 10 tools. We want to leave some incentive to uh, buy the book after all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's, there's another section, five questions. Uh, and these are pretty intense. These are just like questions <laughs> for reflection. Yeah. Like, where in your life or your work are you currently pursuing comfort when what's called for is a little easily tolerable discomfort? That's a tough one. I mean, what, what, I, I mean, well, why don't you talk about the, the, the virtue of easily, uh, of, 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 of seeking easily tolerable discomfort rather than comfort? I mean, the, the, the reason that I um, put these questions at the end is because, you know, I wanted to, to sort of finish the book in a way that sort of brought it uh, home for readers. But but I didn't think that sort of I didn't, as I say, I didn't want to sort of offer a laundry list of like these are the things you should do with your life. I think that asking these questions that on some level, you know, the answer to um, 
or you know gradually the answer becomes clear is, is a much more powerful way and it has been for me to um sort of integrate these kind of things um i'm always amazed in my own life at how little discomfort it takes to throw me off a course that um i know is the right one for me or the best thing to do or the most fulfilling one um it isn't that i shy away from doing certain meaningful things because i become i'm going to have a panic attack or something very serious it's like it's it's tiny it's um it's the sort of sense of like that by sending an email you might risk someone saying no to the thing you're uh, suggesting an email or it's Mm -hmm. by by sort of um spending another half hour working on a difficult bit of writing you might have to feel that kind of aggressive boredom feeling that you sometimes get when when um you can't make a sentence work and it's like but so what every time you go through it it turns out that it's kind of it's kind of nothing and looking back at my own life i think there's been a number of sort of choice points where i either did or didn't just make the choice that made the feeling of discomfort go away Mm -hmm. and i can see the ones i can i can see the the good ones were the ones where i didn't uh just follow the the discomfort doesn't that yeah, does that resonate with you? I mean, I guess for me, one of the big, uh, well, kind of productivity sappers, but just impediments to achievement maybe is just fear. Um, you know, fear of what people will think, fear of the kind of feedback you'll get. And yet there's a place for it. I mean, like I was talking to my wife about this the other day and she said, yeah, but I can think of times when it's probably just as well that you didn't say something you might have said for fear of you know i mean there there is a role for fear of uh of blowback um but man it's a, it's a i think it's a more pervasive thing for many people than they realize uh yeah and i don't think yeah and i don't think i'm right and i think absolutely like you know you need to the point here is to sort of feel your feelings and listen to your thoughts and emotions and sometimes the the fear that there would be human blowback is kind of the right one to the right one to heed um it's just that unconscious way in which like the whole day can be thrown off course by not wanting to feel a little bit of uncertainty or something yeah yeah or just you know going down your your to-do list so to speak and all of them have something that makes you in some sense you're afraid there's something something uh you're afraid of in, in some broad sense of the term i don't know um like right, I, just some yeah. doubt like oh okay but if i but what if i email him now and and it turns out blah and what if this and what if that you know uh it's a lot of that and i think you know yeah and i think you know if the if the if the discomfort that you're afraid of is just some aspect of things that can't be avoided through being a limited human, right? I mean, like not being able to know how things will turn out, that's just baked in. So if you've got a good reason to believe that someone will respond angrily and up and be upset and you'll feel terrible, then that's one thing. If it's just that you don't know how the future will unfold, well, that's how it is. That's life. So, yeah. Now I'll just read uh, only one more of your five questions. In what ways have you yet to accept the fact that you are who you are, not the person you think you ought to be? That's pretty intense. 
<laughs> there was an advanced review in a website um, that said that these questions were so um, acute they almost made the reviewer want to put down the book and go and buy another another productivity book instead. Um, so I hope it I hope it doesn't have that. Well, they they are. Um, um, I, I mean, you know, the first one I uh, I quoted was about discomfort, but they they do they all can make you a little bit uncomfortable, but in a good way. Yeah, I mean, they I mean, they, yeah. they were cause for genuine reflection for me. Oh, I'm, 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 I'm touched to hear it. I think the, um, you know, I think people can, all of us to some extent, go through huge chunks of adulthood, um, following cultural or parental or imagined parental, um, uh, edicts about the right person to be. I think people, there are people, one comes across doing that, one thinks of doing that sort of long after their parents have, died and there's a quote i think it's in that section that i from stephen cope the writer and uh yoga person who um says that like at some point in your life you finally have to realize that like basically nobody cares what you do with your life um yeah. within within certain bounds yeah. uh nobody really cares except us and um very possibly even those closest to us right i mean Oh, totally. Our, our spouses may care that we're <laughs> that we're that we're nice to them, and that we make our contribution to the to the financial stability of the household. But beyond mm. that, you sort of like you should you should probably do what you want because yeah. to, to the extent that you can, because um, no one else is going to mind or to put it rude, more rudely, care. Yeah. Now, uh, my mother used to say we with? wouldn't spend so much time worrying what other people think of us if we realized how seldom they do. Yes. <laughs> um. And, uh, it's true. It's true. The, no one cares about me as much as I do. And it isn't even close. <laughs> or, or to put it a little more gently, they may care about you. They don't care what you're doing in the sense that like the things that you agonize about, you don't need to agonize about. Um, the people well, that's who, true. Right. The people I who mean, really, yeah, yeah I, I mean, go ahead. Sorry. The, the people who really love you, the people who really love you want you to be yeah. doing the things that um, the most fulfilling to you. And so this whole idea that these choices in life about work or other things and should be determined by any sense of like, well, there's a person one has to be. I experience this right now around sort of, and I'm sure you have experienced this right around having a book out and promoting it. And there's certain, there's certain things that I'm, that there's, there's certain kinds of ways that I don't, that I think I'm not made to kind of, talk about my self and brag, but there's also other ways in which I think I am relative to the sort of high class authors that I sometimes mix with, you know? So in both directions, there's kind of, there's a degree of sort of, um, salesiness. So you're that, more uh, crass, crassly self-promotional than some of these, uh, highbrow authors you hang out with. And less, you, you are, you are not. And less crassly self-promotional than many others. that I, I would say than most. Quite possibly. I'm just saying, I, I feel like I inhabit a certain place there and like, I'm slowly getting used to that fact. Um, well, the yeah. modern world forces you to be that way. I think more than the world did 40, 50 years ago. More and more authors are, are expected to do their own self-promoting. Journalists are. Yeah. Magazines hire journalists sometimes because of the number of Twitter followers they have. And, uh, but all of this makes for a very weird situation where your identity is – you think of it at least as this thing that is like out there on social media among other places. Mm -hmm. 
And all of these, a bunch of different people see little, different little aspects of it. And most, you know, very few of them are in a position to actually judge you as a whole person. Very few of them should you actually care about one way, you know, should you right, care about right. their opinions at least. And yet you're kind of forced to take it seriously. It's super weird. And I don't think we pause often enough to appreciate how weird it is. It's yeah, not no, yeah. what natural selection designed is for, folks. Yeah, no, I think that's true. I remember a piece um Virginia Heffernan wrote years ago about um sort of insisting psychologically on a distinction between her online avatar and her mm-hmm. self in a way that felt very uh sort of therapeutic. So that yeah. like, you know, uh, you could your the Twitter version of you can be having a terrible day, but what do you care? You know, I um, think if you can separate yourself from the virtual version of yourself, the social media version, that itself could be a big time saver. Yeah, right, right, uh, and a and a and a source of happiness. So, is there anything else you want to say uh, before we um, instruct people to buy the book? No, I don't think so. Um, yeah. Um, Please, please buy the book. <laughs> I will what say it, what this it comes is down to. unlike any time management book you've ever seen, folks. And, you know, uh, appropriately, it's published by a highbrow publisher for Arstrauss and Giraud. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you got to uh, I guess you got to got to throw Heidegger in there if you want to get the FSG contract <laughs> pretty much in, on a time management book. Right. Uh, my, goal, my goal is to be kind of like the lowest brow within the FSG stable that's still pretty highbrow <laughs> uh but listen it's 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 a great book uh and I, and honestly i'm doing serious reflection based on it i i i, I there's some uncomfortable truths i feel like looming on the horizon here that this may be pushing me toward um good i think i, I hope i survive <laughs> contact with them me too absolutely yeah okay so the book is again 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. The author is the inimitable Oliver Berkman. Thank you, Oliver. We'll see you down the road. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Bob.